Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi there and welcome to the Explaining History podcast and the thing I'm going to talk um, a little bit about today is the relationship that the Conservative governments in Britain during the 1970s and 1980s had with uh, the trade unions, particularly with the uh, National Union of Mine Workers um, and their um, most uh, iconic in some regards and um, belligerent leader, Arthur Scargill. Um, and the reason I'm going to talk about this is um, it's central, really, to uh, an understanding of um, Britain's uh, economic development since the 1980s, British industrial relations, pay rates, and um, the current situation um, that um, the majority of the British workforce, I think, finds itself in at the moment um, in terms of collective bargaining and, and that kind of thing. And if you are listening to this from uh, another part of the world where um, all this seems a kind of a, a bit kind of ob- obscure and parochial, the central kind of conflict of um, the 1980s in Britain is the clash between Margaret Thatcher and the trade union movement. And it is, contrary to what people say, one the trade union movement very nearly won. So everything we understand about Thatcherism uh, now, in retrospect, after Margaret Thatcher died the other year, everything about Margaret Thatcher's legacy could very easily, by 1984, have been derailed. And Thatcherism and the kind of the neoliberal consensus that emerged um, surrounding it, I believe genuinely that Thatcherism... Uh, radically uh, transported the neoliberal model um, to the rest of the world, uh, even to some extent to um, America itself. Um, That could all have been uh, curtailed in 1984 had the unions played uh, a slightly better hand. Now, in previous podcasts, I've talked about industrial relations during the 1960s, particularly uh, as it pertains to Harold Wilson's government. And Wilson makes a catastrophic decision uh, in 1969 to shelve Barbara Castle's um, report uh, into industrial relations and her proposals in place of strife, um, which had some fairly modest suggestions about how to um, prevent wildcat strikes and how to curb union militancy. As strike days were racking up throughout the 1960s, 
Um, the strike days that Britain was experiencing throughout the 1960s still were not as severe as those experienced in most other first world countries. But the perception that the unions were um, lazy, truculent and generally um, bad for the economy was becoming quite widespread, not only through um, the, the middle classes uh, influenced chiefly by papers like the Times and the Telegraph, but also through union members themselves who are becoming fed up at the endless stoppages and, and um, uh, walkouts and go slows that were caused by petty kind of internecine disputes within the trade union movement. The union movement's problem isn't that it was too big, it's that it was too fragmented. In countries like Germany, for example, and the USA, there were large national unions um, super unions, whereas in the UK there were dozens and dozens of uh, tiny unions within the same industries. So that meant that at car plants you would have one union that dominated one particular part of the production process and another union that dominated the other. And if uh, boundaries were transgressed, then there would be stoppages and walkouts, um, which caused the British industry all sorts of problems. And the the thing that Edward Heath in 1970 inherits from Harold Wilson is the legacy of this fail, failure to really deal with the union movement. Heath in 1971 introduced the Industrial Relations Act and it attempts really to institute everything that Barbara Castle had suggested in In Place of Strife. Um, the problem is that the union movement were always going to see the Conservatives and the Conservative Prime Minister as far more combative and far more um, dangerous than that than, than the Labour Prime Minister, even though um, they would cause both Labour and Conservative governments about the same amount of grief throughout the 1970s. The um, government uh, that Heath presided over and the economy that he presided over was one where um, inflation rapidly escalated. So between 70 and 74, there were soaring inflation rates, which resulted in, unsurprisingly, higher levels of industrial unrest as workers demanded um, higher pay rates. In the time of soaring inflation, the legislation proved basically ineffective because the TUC refused to comply or cooperate with it, and it threatened expulsion for any union that did, Illegally, uh, illegally striking shop stewards also faced jail under the Act. Um, but Heath himself knew that the Act was so draconian, the 71 Industrial Relations Act, that he really was nervous about fully enforcing it, which um, gave him a position, or gave him a, a perception and a reality of being utterly weak. Um, this was typical Heath to totally misread situations to... Uh, be um, overly draconian, and then to backtrack from his own policies, thus actually alienating the right of the Conservative Party as well, who claim, who believed, um, with perhaps with some justification, that manifesto pledges uh, to sort out the un unions should be stuck to, even if it was unpopular. The source of Heath's um, pain in between 70 and 74 would come from the miners, who had legitimate grievances, they had been constantly underpaid and undervalued throughout the 60s. Their wages per annum were 3% lower than manufacturing workers, and by the end of the decade, they hadn't really been able to participate in any of the new consumerism of the 1960s. They weren't able to buy their own cars or go on foreign holidays or to um, 
do up their houses in the ways that working class people up and down the country were able to do, perhaps for the first time throughout the 1960s. And also, nationalisation that had been instituted after the Second World War hadn't really done for the union movement what they, they had hoped. I mean, it made the mines safer, but um, higher wages and living standards had not really been uh, achieved. And this, during a period of rising living standards, home ownership, overseas holidays, mass consumerism, poorly paid miners really felt that they'd been excluded from the nation's prosperity, and there was a seething resentment amongst them. Then add that to rising inflation that starts to whittle away the wages that the miners already had. And by the early 1970s, they're feeling not just cheated, but very desperate. Throughout the 60s, the uh, coal industry had shrunk and the National Coal Board had been making um, pits close, uh, pit closures um, at uh, an increasing rate. Um, in the decades 64 to 70, 60 to 70, I beg your pardon, 400 pits and 420,000 miners had been uh, made redundant. The only way the National Union of Mine Workers was able to keep the NCB from closing many of the pits in the poorer parts of the country, like South Wales, was by making low-wage claims. So this was the, the only option that, that, that they had. Until, of course, you get a more militant leadership emerging. When, in 1970, the union um, leadership voted for a 33% pay increase, which was backdated, uh, which was the, the pay rises they felt they hadn't got over the previous decade, to put them on par with other industrial workers. They knew this was going to be rejected by the NCB, and the NUM voted for um, strike action, but it required a two-thirds majority. However, just over 50% of the uh, strikers agreed to strike. So, despite this, a wave of unofficial strikes broke out across North England and South Wales. The Heath government uh, had imposed a pay policy that restricted possible pay rises to 8% in order to prevent inflation. And in December 1971, a second ballot, now with changed NUM rules, that meant that only a 55% majority was needed for a strike was called, and the um, and it was successful. So the new strike began in January 1972, and this time it actually has the mandate uh, has a mandate um, from the the union movement. If, however, fairly considerably gerrymandered by about 10%. Um, the figure who really brings the Heath government to its knees is Arthur Scargill who was the leader of the Barnsley Area Strike Committee. He develops this tactic of flying pickets, of using groups of a 1,000 miners to quickly blockade power stations and coal depots. There were, they were um, moving miners around by car, by bus, and making sure that at, what, at particular strategic points um, that uh, made the entire power energy system of the country very vulnerable, that they could um, uh, that they could blockade and shut the system down. So, particularly places like the Saltley Coke Depot in Birmingham, of which we'll talk about more in in a second. Um, in 1972, um, following the beginning of the strike in January, this tactic was so successful that electricity production fell by 75 percent. 
Skargilat had at his command 40,000 miners, and it, he was picketing 500 separate sites across the country. And he felt he was under siege. Um, the uh, senior police officers advised Heath that if they tried to crack down, there would be serious and widespread loss of life um, if, if, if there was a direct confrontation with the miners. And Heath began to um, feel that he was losing control of the country, and indeed he is. In 1926, the Baldwin government had planned for strike action, so they knew that something was on the way when the general strike happened, and they were able to undermine it successfully using volunteers and reserves of coal, uh, but he had had not been able to plan at all, and didn't have any of the coal, coal stockpiles to um, to beat Scargill with, and certainly didn't have uh, any sort of auxiliary miners or soldiers to uh, to use. So Scargill um, succeeds in shutting down the West Midlands Gas Board's uh, Saltley Coke Depot in Birmingham, and the government finally give in as a result offering a huge 27% pay rise. But by this time, the behaviour of the unions um, is such that um, the capitulation seriously undermines the Heath government. The unions at this point um, do still have some um, public support in that their cause was seen as, you know, whilst massively inconvenient, reasonably justified in that they had not had a pay rise in a decade. However, it's when they launch a second strike in uh, the winter of 1973 during the oil crisis um, and knowing that they have a, a, fan, a fantastic opportunity in their eyes to squeeze more concessions from the government um, that um, the, the patience of the public really starts to snap. Arthur Scargill himself was um, on the, the far left of the union movement, far, far to the left of the traditional union leadership. The traditional union leadership, uh, people like Vic Feather and Jack Jones, were not class warriors, really. They were um, reasonably moderate figures who were part of the kind of the, uh, the system of moderating pay claims, of ensuring workers have a reasonable standard of living, but that the uh, economy doesn't collapse. Um, and they had a, a far more sympathy for people like Heath and Wilson than perhaps is, is reasonably thought. Um, supposedly, Heath um, and Jack Jones had met before at the Battle of Yarama during the Spanish Civil War, where uh, Jack Jones was part of the International Brigade and Heath himself was, uh, was an observer. Um, Will, um, Scargill uh, believed that the struggle against the government was part of, was bigger, a, a bigger struggle, a bigger confrontation than simply about uh, wage claims. It was an attack on the capitalist system itself, and um, it was a, an attempt to bring about a revolution. Um, during the 70s, he's popular with um, uh, large sections of the working classes. During the 1980s, he's a much more divisive figure, and, um, so, and, and, and has continued to be so. So during the second strike in the winter of 73 to 74, um, the oil crisis um, that had been going on as a result of the, uh, the, war, the Yom Kippur war uh, in the Middle East had left the country so dependent on coal that uh, any disruption to coal supplies would be a, a crisis. 
and the union saw their opportunity to gain fresh pay increases from the government for its members. The strike meant that the coal-fired power stations began to run short of supplies of coal and electricity production declined. So this leads to power cuts, causing the government to declare a state of emergency and order a three-day working week between January and March 1974. All businesses were supplied with electricity for three days a week and employees were forced to stay at home for the rest of the time. In 1974, Heath goes to the polls with the slogan who governs Britain, asking the voters to back him against the unions. The Conservatives' subsequent defeat showed that the public had no confidence in their ability uh, to deal with the unions. Um, so the episodes that follows that, the, the winter of discontent, um, was uh, Labour's turn to reap the, the union whirlwind. Um, the um, Callaghan, the Wilson government that replaces um, Heath... Uh, repeals the Industrial Relations Act and tries to negotiate a new policy called the Social Contract, which was um, a code of a voluntary code that was designed to prevent the need for a formal incomes policy. So putting down uh, strict increases, uh, strict limits on uh, increases in wages. And it was hoped that the unions would see moderation here. But in a time of you know acute inflation, it was very difficult for um, the unions to to moderate anything at all. It would be seen to be moderating anything at all. Harold Wilson's only appeal in this time period was that um, he wasn't seen as the kind of the uh, aggressive confrontational figure as far to, towards the unions um, that Heath was. And it was hoped by um, the public that um, the uh, less... Um, confrontation the, the fewer disputes there were the less chance there was of a repetition of the three-day week however this was not to be one of the problems that both Heath and Wilson had struggled with was the development of wildcat strikes so the uh, development of um, the growth in the power of union shop stewards the men on the factory floors who were um, Uh, seen by the popular press as kind of little Napoleons in their own right, uh, who very often weren't uh, in uh, communicado with the union movement, the union leadership, but could simply shut down workplaces and order walkouts um, because they were uh, exceedingly uh, well uh, respected and um, powerful uh, in their own particular fiefdom. Very few of these characters are um, working for their, from their own kind of uh, Marxist revolutionary ideological ends, despite what the popular press might have had to say. Many of them were not socialists. They were entirely wedded to the capitalist system and wanted more from it. They, uh, they wanted to um, be paid better. They wanted to enjoy more of the, the fruits of consumerism that were becoming a increasingly difficult to access during a period of high inflation. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So the union bosses are becoming less influential, and therefore they can't enforce pay restraint. Um, and the people that are far more likely to rebel against pay restraint and the thinking in, in local terms about them and their mates are uh, much less likely to look at a bigger national picture and think about their, you know, their responsibilities on, on the national level. They don't care about that. Um, in 1975, the TUC, the Trade Union Congress, agreed to pay increases of £6 a week to workers earning less than £8,500. They accepted further limits in 1976 and rejected a motion at the 1976 Trade Union Conference to end the social contract and return to free pay bargaining. When Wilson resigned in ill health in April 1976, he was succeeded by Callaghan, and in 1978 the prospects for Labour looked tantalisingly good, much of the economic crises of the, uh, the decade had been, it appeared they had been overcome. The unions had complied with Callaghan's call for pay restraint and he had called an election in, uh, and had he called an election in 78, he would probably have won with a reduced majority. Callaghan and his Chancellor, Dennis Healy, made tackling inflation a much more important economic priority than former Labour leaders. By 1977, Dennis Healy believed that inflation was being brought back under control and the social contract had run its course. He believed that free bargaining could return, but warned against greedy unions demanding too much. The following year, he was forced to backtrack as inflation soared once again and he endured, enforced a strict 5% pay increase for low-paid workers. This resulted in a winter of strike action in 78-79, known as the Winter of Discontent, which brings down the Labour government and ushers in uh, Mrs Thatcher. The winter of discontent began with um, Ford pay negotiations. Um, the Ford uh, manuf car manufacturing giant tries to enforce the government's pay policy and in response 15,000 auto workers went on an official strike on the 22nd of September 1978 but by the 5th of October the TGWU had endorsed it thus making it an official strike. And that led to 57,000 uh, car workers going on strike. Ford offers a 17% rise, meaning that they would be penalised by the government for this, but they thought it was better to pay massive fines than to have a total stoppage and um, Ford go completely bust in Britain. 
uh, the uh, US um, headquarters of Ford were thinking of pulling out of Britain altogether. Um, the left of the Labour Party then sabotaged the social contract and they vote through a motion at the party conference in October that year that the government should stop intervening in pay negotiations between workers and management and allow free bargaining, which the workers would win, um, by their logic, um, to return. This is now followed by um, the haulage strike. What the Ford workers and the, Labour, the left of the Labour Party had done is that they had prevented the government from enforcing any kind of pay restraint at all. And that meant that all workers in most sectors of British industry thought that um, pay deals were up for grabs. And the, uh, the way to do it is to strike, to be as... Uh, and some of the um, union leadership actually articulate that um, the way to do it is to be as unreasonable as as possible. Um, so in December 1978, lorry drivers began an overtime ban demanding a 40% pay rise. Callahan was reluctant um, to declare a state of emergency, as Heath had done, because he knew that this was a hallmark um, of, of failed government. And he knew that he would be swept away if, if he did. Um, the, that would have enabled the army, however, to have taken over the job of, of haulage. And the TGWU picketed oil refineries, and that meant that petrol couldn't reach petrol stations, so literally nobody eventually could get to work. And um, heating oil couldn't reach schools, hospitals and homes. Uh, this was during the coldest winter since 1947. Then in January that year... Um, the public sector workers go on strike. They had been uh, poorly paid for a long, long period of time and, again, being squeezed by inflation. Um, and they wanted to um, have, in, say, for example, in the case of, of nurses, a 25% pay rise. Public sector unions began to then lose control over their own members. Uh, shop stewards and um, radical members, uh, radical uh, left unionists within the grassroots of the union movement um, refused to listen to any kind of pay restraint um, by the the, the unions. And um, there were horror stories of things like cancer patients being abandoned by ambulance crews and in Liverpool of graves not being dug. Um, mountains of rubbish piling up in Leicester Square, and um, it was there was um, a fear, um, perhaps exaggerated, but on the front page of the national papers, that people would start to be, have to be buried at sea, and the overall feeling was that the unions had ground Britain to a halt. the The point that inflation was largely the cause of, of most of this was lost on a kind of. Um, by the early 1979, an almost visceral hatred of the unions in certain quarters. The the unions had perhaps done things that they would never be forgiven for in Britain. And the government uh, eventually offered public sector strikes an 11% rise. Um, and the, uh, the strike ends, the winter of discontent strikes end. Gradually in the spring, as uh, strikers either get what they want or they start to drift back to work, realising that they, they had been um, uh, defeated. Um, but the, the long-term effect was this enormous shift in attitudes. In six, 1969, 60% of the population ha- who were interviewed had positive views of the unions. In 1979, only 20% did. And even within the union movement itself, one-third of union members vote for Margaret Thatcher in 1979. 
And so it shows you not all union members were happy with the level of strike action. Margaret Thatcher um, comes to power in 1979, and the people who vote for her vote for her because she they believe she has uh, they believe that she has some kind of mandate or some kind of agenda to deal with the union problem. But the reality was there was actually far less in the 79 manifesto about explicitly uh, taking on the unions. And Margaret Thatcher herself knew in 1979 it was something she was far too weak to do. Even in 1981, when the uh, National Union of Miners again threatened strike action in order to secure pay deals the, and the prevent the closure of pits by the National Coal Board, Margaret Thatcher has to back down. It's only after winning the Falklands War um, in 1983 that she feels strong enough to take on the union movement. And for Margaret Thatcher, there was a, um, a, a personal element to this. She never forgave the unions for bringing down the Heath government in 1974, even though that in itself enabled, uh, gave her uh, an opportunity to um, rise to power. In 1978, Nicholas Ridley, one of the uh, key figures of Thatcherism, had already drawn up uh, a strategy uh, that he believed could break the NUM. Firstly, they would pass a law against secondary strike action. That meant that if the miners went on strike, it would not be lawful for the dock workers, say, to come out in sympathy for them. There would be a development, a plan to develop uh, alternative sources of power, such as gas or nuclear energy, to prevent the country from being too heavily dependent on coal. And the key to beating the mines would be to build up, over a long period of time, um, reserves of coal stocks so the country could not be held to ransom. The uh, appointment of Ian McGregor, a Canadian businessman, to head the National Coal Board. Um, was a, a, a key uh, cl- indication to the miners that they were in for conflict. Um, McGregor was there, uh, really, in their eyes, and you know, quite explicitly, to close pits down and to reduce and rationalise the mining industry, which was still um, being subsidised by the taxpayer. Margaret Thatcher, one of her, the underpinnings of her ideology, really, was that industries stand on their own two feet, and if they can't survive, then they don't. The fact that um, mining villages in South Wales, in north, the north of England, in Scotland, and in Tyneside, and in Northern Ireland, and even actually in the south of England too, if we think of places like Bettishanger, were totally dependent on, these, uh, on, on the pits to survive, um, was a, rather a secondary issue as far as she was concerned. Um, the uh, the government uh, re- reduced its subsidies to the pits, and that meant pits would close. She was aware that she had to deal with Arthur Scargill, who was, became president of the NUM in 1981. Um, and she knew that Scargill um, was not just uh, fighting for miners' rights, but also quite a key ideologue. Prior to the confrontation, um, the government introduces a series of laws um, that uh, particularly the 1984 Trade Union Act that required all unions to conduct a secret ballot of their members um, prior to announcing a strike, which meant that um, the majority of uh, members had to approve the strike, and if they didn't, it wasn't a legal strike. 
Scargill believed that he would lose the ballot if it were called because there were many pits that weren't close to closing. In fact, enough that um, over half the union movement would probably not strike, uh, not vote to strike. Um, And they needed to carry on earning a living, obviously. So he chose not to hold a ballot, meaning uh, that the strike was undermined from the start. And it proved a fatal weakness in his strategy. The strike began on May, in May 1984 against the uh, proposal by McGregor to close pits. Scargill organised flying pickets as he had previously done, and um, another uh, union, NACODs, the National Association of Colliery Overmen, Deputies and Shop Firers, chose not to go on strike. And so there was immense bitterness and anger and resentment between members who went to work and members who went out on strike. As the strike was illegal, the government was able to confiscate some of the NUM funds. The government also used MI5 to infiltrate the NUM and to um, find out its strategy. Tens of thousands of police officers from all over Britain were bussed in to South Yorkshire and major major other coal-producing areas to police the strikes, but in some instances they, their presence provoked confrontation with mining communities. They were seen by the miners almost as an army of occupation. Um, some of them were uh, they were very well paid and some of them taunted the miners by waving money at them. Um, they were equipped with horse, horses and riot shields and truncheons. Um, and there was the, the most epic battle between uh, the miners and the police happened to Orgreave, in July 1984, where 5,000 miners and 5,000 police uh, clashed, and there were over 100 injuries, and dozens of miners were arrested, and the incident shocked the country. Margaret Thatcher um, said, following Orgreave, I must tell you that what we have got is an attempt to substitute the rule of the mob for the rule of law, and it must not succeed. It must not succeed. There are those who are using violence and intimidation to impose their will on others who do not want it. The rule of law must prevail over the rule of the mob. And that was the way in which the, uh, the Thatcherism and the Thatcher press at the time presented things like the minor strike, that this was um, sort of mob rule. The strike polarises public opinion. Radical groups supported um, the miners. There were um, gay and lesbian and feminist um, solidarity organisations and um, the uh, ma- the majority of the tabloid and broadsheet press came solidly behind the government. Um, public opinion that had been sympathetic towards the miners slowly drifts towards um, towards um, the the government. And particularly, there were divisions within the Labour Party led by Neil Kinnock. Um, the Labour Party could not endorse an illegal strike. However, the left of the Labour Party certainly certainly did do. Um, the death of a taxi driver in South Wales taking a, a miner to work um, caused by two striking miners dropping a chunk of concrete off a motorway bridge onto the, onto the cab uh, finally turned all public, well, the majority of public opinion against the miners. And um, the strike um, finally, finally petered out in early 1985. Scargill had hoped that the strike would starve the British economy of coal and bring industry to a standstill. But the strategy of stockpiling prevented that, 
and relying more on uh, gas and nuclear power and imported coal uh, meant that the economy kept going. Power stations continued to function, so there were no power cuts. So the, the mistakes that Heath made in the in between 70 and 74 were not repeated. And um, the NUM began to run out of money. It began to run low on funds, and mining communities experienced extreme hardship. Skygill's failure to call a national ballot weakened support for the strikers. Um, and in places like Lancashire and North Wales, there's less interest in striking than there is in South Wales and Yorkshire. So it isn't a, a unified national movement, and the Conservatives understood this. The government got this and knew exactly how to exploit it. So during late 84 and early 85, some strikers returned to work, and in March 85, the NUM called off the strike, defeated, uh, defeating Scargill, who argued that the, the union should fight on. So the, the strike was this fundamental turning point in British industrial relations. It, trade union militancy, that had been a feature of the 70s, was decisively defeated the, uh, by the 1990s, the strike days, instead of tens of millions, are down to hundreds of thousands. Moreover, the government had shown it was committed to enforcing its new union laws. So practices uh, such as calling strikes without a secret ballot and secondary picketing died out. The NUM was one of the most powerful unions in Britain, but it was also hit hard. Between 85 and 1990, it lost 84% of its members. So the defeat of the minor strike was also kind of the destruction of the, the NUM and overall the, uh, the, the death knell of militant uniancy in Britain. The Margaret Thatcher's success allowed the government to continue its attack on union rights. And in 1988, 89, 1990 and 1993, further laws were reduced the rights of unions. In 1988, union members were given um, legal protection for crossing picket lines. That means any strike can be broken. John Major's government in introduced a law forcing unions to conduct strike ballots by post, as well as forcing unions to submit their voting process to independent scrutiny. The reduction in union power went hand-in-hand hand with the reduction in union membership. And that really is more about a kind of a shift in the economy. It's, it's more about a, a kind of a transition to a less, um, a more service-based economy that was generally culturally less unionised anyway. So it was also significant because of its political and social um, implications, which demonstrated that the government was prepared to deal with the opposition in an uncompromising manner. Before, the gov governments had been happy to, or not happy to, but willing to uh, have compromise with the union movement and accept that certain things were immutable and unchangeable. But Margaret Thatcher smashed through all of that. Anyway, so um, I've gone on for way too long today. Um, the the thing that we can we can draw from um, from all of this, well, we can draw a couple of things. Firstly, there is a, a kind of a, a clear relationship between inflation and union militancy. And secondly, the um, that Margaret Thatcher does represent this new type of conservatism, one that is kind of militant and combative, are willing to stick to. Uh, manifesto pledges um, irrespective of the, um, the the strife that may that may engender so quite a different character to Heath altogether. Anyway I hope you've enjoyed this one, this extra long uh, Explaining History podcast and I'll catch you next week sometime. All the best, bye bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.